Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is your boy, Jay Mason. Welcome to a very special edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get the inside scoop from those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to smell them and be celebrated. I have a legend with me right now on audio and video on Zoom. This man has been in the game for decades, from Los Cumbia Kings to his solo work. You know him from Don't Wanna Try No More, Sugar Sugar with Baby Bash, and the list goes on and on. The one, the only, Mr. Frankie J. Frankie, welcome to Beyond what the up? Album Cover, my brother. Hey, man, what up, Jay? How are you, man? Thanks for having me. Appreciate the intro. I love it. <laughs> and no problem, man. That's what we try to do here. We just try to celebrate everybody and just let them know that you're not new to this. You put in your dues, and we're going to jump right straight into it. You were born in Tijuana, raised in yes. San Diego. So where did your love of yeah. music come from, and did you grow up listening to those Border Blaster stations in Tijuana? Oh, man. You know, um, I was born in Tijuana, uh, but raised in San Diego, California. Um, I only lived in Tijuana for about maybe four years and, um, you know, moved to San Diego at such a young age. So, uh, you know, all my grade school, all my years of school were basically in, in, in California and in San Diego. So I grew up with the household um, you know, music. And it was all genres. It was all kinds of music. I mean, you name it from like, you know, um, Spanish to English, from soul to mariachi, um, you know. And uh, I was very fortunate, man, to soak all, all those, uh, you know, juices of music and, you know, create what has, what you see now, you know, the product that you see now. I was very fortunate because my mom, my dad, they loved, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, traditional Mexican music. And of course my older brother, um, you know, loved R&B, loved hip hop, loved, you know, the freestyle uh, music. And, you know, it, it was like a big old salad bowl of nothing but different melodies and sounds at our household. Uh, so it was definitely a, a, a treat, you know, for me to be around all of that and be inspired by it as a kid. So, um, you know, thanks to, to my folks and, you know, my, my, my brother, you know, who, who helped me a lot when I was a kid. Right. So it was a big mix of different musical sounds in the household. So growing up, listening to the traditional Mexican music and then hearing the emergence of hip hop and R&B and freestyle, how did that shape you going forward as an artist, hearing those eclectic sounds at home? Well, I, I think for the most part, just the difference in between those genres was just, it was a big difference, you know? Um, and, you know, first of all, I, you know, hearing the freestyle music with my, uh, with my brother, um, American Latinos, Lamont, uh, TKA, The Cover Girls, um, expose, like all these major Latino artists that were big, big at the time uh, and huge sounding on the radio. Um, you know, the sound came from the streets. It was like basically salsa mixed, mixed in with, uh, you know, the, the, the fusion, different fusions of, of the East Coast. And, uh, and, it, and it really did give me an inspiration. I mean, it really inspired me uh, to hear all these artists, you know, on the radio. And I was like, wow, I could do the same thing. I want to be like them, you know? 
and then you know hearing hearing the hip-hop sounds uh was like man it was just like incredible like whoa like hearing run dmc you know back in the days uh, hearing uh um you know the fat boys curtis blow i mean i was introduced to all these you know amazing amazing uh, artists and and icons you know uh that uh, are now still being looked at today and still being you know, uh, you know the music is still inspiring the world you know um so uh, it was it was cool to get you know the pop sounds to get the the latin you know american sound that was you know uh, on the radio at the time and I, I can't forget you know of course michael and prince you know michael jackson prince you know all those those sounds that were just very uh you know they were just incredible you know and, and inspiring uh mm -hmm. to me as a kid so a lot of good good music yeah definitely a lot of dope stuff you know you mentioned tk cover girls sweet sensation stevie b all of the great freestyle artists that were coming out of new york and miami now before you hooked up with Pumbia kings did you get to start cutting into the talent show circuit in middle school high school and just serenading the young ladies you know it, it uh it, it was um you know, when I was in, in school, when I was in high school, actually in junior high, uh, at the age of 14 uh, years old, um, uh, I was already singing. I was listening to a lot of the R&B stuff. I was on the radio uh, listening to like, you know, Shy, High Five, Escape, uh, you know, all those sounds, man. It was just a lot of sounds that, that we were, you know, as me as a kid, I was so used to hearing on the radio. And so I was being inspired by all these artists and, um, I was asked to do a talent show in junior high, but I was too scared. I was too scared. I was like, no, I don't know if, I want, I don't know if I'm, I'm able to do it, you know, to sing in front of my, my peers yet. Um, so I didn't do it when I was in junior high, but uh, you know, when I got to high school, um, I was in 10th grade. I remember I was 15 going on, going, going on 16 years old. Uh, one of the uh, ASB advisors asked me if I could, you know, you know, do a, a little performance for, for lunchtime because they already knew, a lot of my friends already knew that I could sing. And, you know, he was like, you know, why not try to, you know, do a little something with your music, you know, uh, you know, during lunchtime and see how, see how it goes. So, you know, they had the PA sound, everything out already set up in, in the, like a little stage area in our, in our lunch area. And uh, he was like, hey, man, he gave me the mic and he goes, you know, have at it. See what uh, what you can do. Inter entertain us. So um, I remember, man, being super, super nervous, scared. And I just went, I just went for it. And original uh, with some very, very good friends of mine at the time that um, were also inspiring artists. Uh, and we were doing some, you know, freestyle music at the time. So I went and performed a couple of my original songs. And wow. Because they couldn't believe that I was actually performing of them. And uh, that's kind of like how the whole thing started with me. Like I started building the, you know, the, the I guess the, the strength, you know, to perform in front of my own peers. Um, and that's 
all began. Right, and this is back in the days, folks, where you used to have to cut your teeth in the talent shows, and if you play your cards right, you'll get that nice young lady to go with you to that Friday night dance after the big game. Now, also, at this time, were you developing your skills as a songwriter and as a musician? Did you grow up reading music or playing by ear or doing traditional lessons? Um, you know, I never got, I, you know, my mom and my dad never had much, really, to to invest in me uh, when I was a kid, they were, they were just, you know, they had regular jobs, man. And, you know, very little money. They only had enough to, to pay the rent and pay the bills and, you know, get us whatever we could, you know, to put clothes on our backs and food on the table. So they weren't able to pay for any extra uh, activities for us, you know, as, as kids. Um, so I, I literally had to learn all by ear. I never once took singing lessons. I never once took any kind of, piano lessons or guitar lessons or anything of that sort, I had to learn all by ear. Um, so, you know, as, as they say, man, if you really want something, you, you're going to go and learn it, you know, and, and you're going to really, uh, you know, learn it firsthand, you know, by trial and error. Um, so luckily, you know, like I said earlier, I had some really good friends that were also, um, you know, inspiring artists and they wanted to be artists. So we would all get together and write songs together and try to, you know, make ends meet, you know, um, and we would put our talents together and try to figure out chord progressions, figure out production, you know, how to use a certain keyboard, how to sequence. Um, and I started learning that way. Uh, and then I have a, a few friends that were teaching me how to write songs. Like, how do I start and write a song? Like, how do you get a verse done? How do you get a bridge? How do you get a chorus? So we were all learning all these things, you know, firsthand, like nobody, uh, you know, we didn't have a teacher to teach us exactly how to uh, arrange a song or any, you know, anything like that. We literally had, there was no YouTube back then, back then. <laughs> there was no, you know, crazy internet that was helping us with tutorials like, like there is now. Um, so uh, we basically had to learn it all on our own. Right. Turn on whatever radio station you had on, lock yourself in that room. Yeah. If you were lucky to tape it, rewind apart and learn it. Like how Prince in Purple Rain, when he was learning the chords, rewind it, play it again and learn it note for note. There you go, man. That's exactly how we used to. I remember being a kid and just having a little boombox and sitting outside my grandparents' house, just listening to the radio for hours until I heard my favorite song. And I just remember sitting there studying the songs, studying the music and learning lyrics, learning the, the lyrics, you know, and um, that's how my days went. That was basically like my hobby. So, uh, you know, uh, to some day it might've been a boring thing, but to me, it was like, to me, it was like, you know, just getting information and, and you know, saving it right here and, and here in the heart, because that's what uh, gave me the energy and the strength to, to do what I'm doing today, but, you know, just reading, you know, uh, and, and listening to all these like melodies and lyrics and stuff like that, all these songs, these great songs that were playing back then. So uh, that was basically my school. <laughs> mm -hmm. So then around 99, you hooked up with Cumbia Kings, which was put together by A.B. Quintanilla, who is the older yep. brother of the late, great Selena. So how did that come about? Well, um, I think uh, after high school, 
um, a friend of mine asked me to go to Texas for the first time. This is the first time that I'd actually ever decided to travel outside of California. Uh, I was about 18, about to turn 19 years old. And uh, my friend uh, was gonna go to Austin, Texas to go meet her boyfriend's family. So she asked me to go with her and her boyfriend to help them drive by herself so she was like can you come with us and help us and it's like yeah sure you know i got nothing else to do you know i was young so so young i didn't have any any kind of uh crazy responsibility so my mom and my dad at the time i was still living under the roof they allowed me to go and so i went and it was definitely a, a field trip for me it was it was an adventure so when i went to texas for the first time it was a different experience and i was able to meet a lot of people you know from the music uh business because my friend that was um you know, traveling with her boyfriend, she was also a singer. And, you know, she loved music. So she was all about it. And, uh, you know, went to Texas, and we stayed there for about maybe a week, a week and a half, I think it was. And just by those little, you know, by the little time that I was there, I got to meet a, a few people. Um, one of those people was, um, um, you know, one of the guys, one of the main guys from uh, uh, the club scene out there in, in Austin. So it was funny, because he knew a lot of other connections and, and you know people from radio stuff like that so when the that trip was basically done when we came back home uh i had that connection so you know i was basically back in san diego but still you know trying to do the whole thing with the music and then one day i got a call uh from this person that i met his name is john paul ramirez um and uh he was like hey you know uh, it'd be awesome for you to to come out here and do some, you know, some some music with us, and so uh, man, I think I ended up taking another trip to Texas, and I stayed out there with them. And right after that, man, I met more people. So, I, what I'm trying to say is, meeting so many people in connection with the music industry was what helped me uh, get my first opportunity to be a, a lead singer for this group called the Gumia Kings. Because of them, I met AB. Uh, Quintanilla, and then Abe was needing a um, a singer for the Cumbia Kings, and I, I already knew who they were. They were an established group already. Uh, I think they had already started their whole, um, you know, campaign of, of promotion and marketing on their first album, which was Amor, Familia y Respeto, and uh, they just needed someone to come in that spoke Spanish fluently and that could carry on, you know, uh, interviews with Abe. So I was the lucky one, man. I was the I was the the lucky one out of the bunch, and um, I was just you know in a, in a very I was at the right place at the right time, so to speak. Right, so. and that what tends to happen is when one thing connects, then everything else starts to snowball. And I want to go back a minute and talk about you signed briefly with Ola Records, and that was oh, founded man. by Jelly Bean Benitez. I do my research, and you put out uh, some <laughs> tracks on a freestyle compilation. But the solo album was shelf. So what was that experience like at Ola? And how did that prep you for going into Cumbia Kings? Cumbia Kings. Well, it definitely prepped me for that because it taught me a lot about, you know, the whole thing with publishing. It taught me a lot about, um, you know, first of all, even traveling, because uh, I think when I when I signed as a as a soul as an artist to Ola Recordings, um I traveled and I did, a, I think, like three or four shows with, with them, with the label. 
So, you know, it, it introduced me to the business side of it because it was the very first time that I had ever actually signed, um, you know, to an actual record label, uh, a major independent record label and uh, make some decent money with that at the age of 20 years old. Um, because I was still anything, um, you know, with, with when it comes to the music. And um, so it taught me about, you know, the business side of it. Um, and uh, it prepped me to, you know, do the, the whole thing with the Gumia Kings. I did release one song with Ola Records. Uh, it was supposed to be one song with the option for an album. We didn't get to the album because the label ended up going bankrupt after like a year and a half or two of being with them. And so, um, it, you know, it, it, it was something that was basically like a stepping stone for me to get to, you know, the next level. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a cool experience, you know, definitely a cool experience. And finally, like, you know, to learn a little bit about the business. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was definitely uh, something that, that helped me get to, to the next level. Mm, and then before hooking up with Pumbia Kings, what was it like for you hearing on the radio and seeing on videos acts such as your Barrio Boys, Bobby Ross, Avila, mm -hmm. Menagerie that was signed by Prince Marky D out of New York, just seeing that oh, wow. early infusion of Latinx and saying like, yeah. hey, they're out doing it, I could do it too. Oh man, they were very inspiring to me because first of all, um, you know, Barrio Boys were you know, uh, basically what I wanted to do. That's, that's how I saw myself and, and their image, how they carried themselves. They were fun, you know, a, a fun group of guys that were like brothers, they would get along and I would see how um, that would come across on camera. Not to mention that they actually had a duet with Selena as well. And they did really, really well with that, with that project. But, you know, most important, they were also uh, singers that could actually sing and there were Latinos they were doing you know really good R&B sounding kind of songs and both English and Spanish so I connected with that and um, I, you know, it was just inspiring to see them um, you know do doing what they were doing I was like I want to be like them you know I was I was a kid I was a young kid just trying to figure it out you know trying to figure everything out when it comes to the music and how can I do what they're doing uh, you know, of course, even with Bobby, you know, later on, years later, we became friends. We worked together on, on uh, an actual project, which it never came out, but it was something that, that, uh, that we did together, which is another story. Um, but yeah, like, you know, seeing them, you know, Bobby and, and them um, was inspiring because I was like, I could relate to them and, and I saw myself in them. So uh, it, it, it filled me with happiness, filled me with joy to see that you know, these guys were out there doing it big, you know, doing some big things. Yeah, because that Howie Roll album, for me, solid, yeah. great album, especially I Get Lifted, which was one of the early yeah. appearances of Fat Joe. Dope record. That's true. That was, now I'll be honest, man, that song, I Get Lifted, was what gave me uh, the idea uh, later on, years later, to uh, create a, a a lyric or a concept for the song Sugar Sugar because the song I Get Lifted stuck to my head. And, you know, the first lyrics of 
of Sugar Sugar, of one of my, my biggest hits with Bash, uh, it says, you got me lifted, shifted higher than the ceiling. And gifted and ceiling are both two words that are on I Get Lifted. And uh, it was, you know, something that really impacted me as a kid when I was, you know, listening to them and still to this day, listen to their music. So that song, I Get Lifted, is something that um, I treasure because it's, it's something that gave me that lyrical vibe and feel, idea mm-hmm. uh, to do something with, with uh, Sugar Sugar. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I've told the guys that. I've told them about it because now they're, they're friends of mine. And they were just like, no way, that's crazy. Wow, like we didn't know that. I was like, yeah, man. And that's exactly like you said, it's one of the first, um, you know, records that, that uh, uh, well, when they did the feature with Fat Joe, that really like, you know, to me it was like, oh man, Fat Joe worked with the Mario Boys, Mario Boys worked with Fat Joe. It was, a, it was just something cool to watch, you know, and to hear. Right, and then upon doing my research, I was looking up about Selena when they, when she signed to my Latin, they didn't want her to do an English language album because they felt her appeal wasn't big enough. But I'm looking at the fact that look at what Gloria Estefan was doing. That just goes exactly. to show that the market was there. And then I also felt that Menudo could have capitalized more in the English language market because they had the same appeal like a new edition or new kids. But it kind of seemed like back then it was more of a singular focus on just concentrating on the Latin market and not necessarily crossing over to the English language side. I think what Gloria Stefan did, you know, even a Carlos Santana, what they did was they broke that mode and, um, you know, they created that lane for a lot of us uh, Latinos to come in and break into the American market, into the pop world. I think back then there was a lot of uh, major labels that were afraid in a sense to kind of break Latin artists into the American side because they probably said, no, let's just stay where we're comfortable. If you could get out of your comfort zone, it might not actually happen for you. You might take a risk. But, you know, there was a time where, where I think, you know, labels just did not want to take those risks because of business reasons. And, you know, they thought that maybe they were not going to make enough money or the records were not going to sell. But it just goes to show you that, you know, when you believe in something you know so much you're gonna you're gonna manifest it into reality you know right and i think uh when selena unfortunately you know uh she did not get to see the success of her english uh project uh but they were well uh on their way you know to 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 do that you know she was well on her way to to you know to feel that and see that success uh, unfortunately, her life was taken, you know, too soon. And um, but they were they were definitely on the right route. And uh, you know, she did amazing with her English pro- English project uh, with the uh, the album Dreaming of You. And um, but yeah, uh, you know, I think there was a lot of you know, there was a time where where um, I think the labels weren't um, fully convinced, you know, of Latino artists to try to break in into the pop world because they thought it would be too difficult, you know, mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but thankfully they set the tone, you know, they, they paved the way for us. Yeah. They definitely laid the groundwork for everything else that came after, whether it be yourself, Mark Anthony, Ricky Martin, no question. And to 
explosion yeah. that you see today was Cinco, Daddy Yankee, Bad Bunny, Camila Cabello. You know, the list goes on to all of yeah. everybody that came through that door. Now, you were with Columbia Kings till 03, and then you went on to sign with Columbia about your solo album. So, what was that transition going from a group to finally getting to do your own solo project? Man, yeah. Exactly. I think, um, you know, when I came out as a solo artist uh, on the R&B side, there wasn't many uh, of us Latinos doing the R&B stuff. Um, and it was really hard for me to break through that, that genre um, because it was, it was tough to get uh, the recognition. But luckily, you know, uh, you know Sony was, was pretty... Uh, um, they, they supported the whole project. They supported all three of my projects. Uh, you know, we did three, uh, three English albums, uh, with Sony Columbia. Uh, I did two Spanish albums with them. So a total of five albums. And, um, you know, they pushed me as an artist and, uh, they got me out there in the main, main pop, pop world. And, you know, we had great records that allowed me to, to have, uh, the career that I have today. And, you know, thanks to, you know, the incredible team that I had too, that, that was pushing hard for me. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was, it was not easy. It wasn't easy to break through, um, on the urban side. So now, uh, I feel that from the hard work that we, that we put in, and it's, it's, it's opened the, the door, you know, it's opened the gates to a lot of these other urban, um, Latin artists that are now, you know, venturing into this genre, uh, and now having their success. So, you know, we did some, I think we did, you know, uh, some, some big things when, when uh, you know, when we were working uh, these, these albums on the R&B. Yeah, you definitely did some big things for that because when I hear Don't Want to Try No More, Inspiration-wise, for me, it reminded me a lot of Tender Love by Force and Deeds, especially with those pretty chords. There you go. That's exactly where, and I'll be honest with you, um, I learned how to play Tender Love uh, on the piano. Um, and that was the song that inspired me to write Don't Want to Try. Uh, because of the way that it sounded, the, the bells and the, the the chords and stuff like that. I mean, obviously, in this day and age, man, we recycle the same chords in a lot of a lot of big big songs, a lot of big records. So it's all about how you do the melodies, how you write your lyrics, and how you come across when you're writing these these songs. So uh, I thank I thank God that that. You know those those kinds of records were being done in those in, during those years in the '80s and the early '90s. I mean, they were big ballads. So for me, I've, I've always been a big fa uh, uh, like big ballad fan, uh, a big fan of these you know ballads. So um, they've they've inspired me a whole lot. So yeah, Tender Love. A lot of people always said that it reminded them of of Tender Love or even um, what's uh, Max. It's Maxwell's uh, song. I think it's called A Woman's Work. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Even some of the corporate, yeah. So uh, you know, it was pretty cool when 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 the song came out. A lot of people were kind of adding their similarities and stuff like that. So yeah, 
Right. And then you put out the sophomore album, The One. And I didn't know this until researching that Obsession was a cover. It was done by the Dominican American Bachata band Aventura. And you just took it and add your spin to it and you linked up with Baby Bash. Yeah, man. It was a record that uh, was originally written and, and produced as a bachata song. It was a big bachata record for Aventura. Um, and when we did it, uh, you know, when me and my brother Baby Bash did it, I kind of added the whole R&B feeling to it. And I rewrote the song, uh, made it made it my own, you know, basically put my own vibe and feel to it. Uh, produced by Happy Perez, same producer who produced Sugar Sugar for me and for Bash. Uh, we reconnected and um, it turned into a big, big record for me. And it helped Aventura uh, keep keep going, you know, so... It was a favor for a favor, and uh, we did well with it. And so it is what it is today. You know, it's turned into a classic. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, ironically, man, it was, it was actually a bachata record first. Mm-hmm. And you also did a cover of the extreme classic record, More Than Words. Now, was that a song you always wanted to cover, or was that label idea saying, hey, let's cover this record? No, not a, it was not a label idea at all. We were, when I say we, it was me and my, my band. We, we had a show in Boston. It was me, Quinn Stefani, Akon, Will Smith, Baby Bash. Uh, I want to say uh, there was more artists there. It was a big radio gig. Um, we were doing a big promo run, and we were promoting, um, you know, the singles from the album, the one. We had uh, um, we had obsession and uh, how to deal. I think how to deal was the second single we were promoting. How to deal uh, off the album the one and um, I had basically uh, I was second to last on that show and we were gonna call it. We, we, we had basically already finished our set. We had already done all the songs that we were gonna do for for our set. Um, and then someone from, from behind us, the curtains uh, from the radio station out there in Boston said, hey, man, can you guys do one more song? Because Will Smith is late for his set and he won't be here for another 10 minutes. So we kind of had to keep the, the crowd, you know, um, entertained. <laughs> and so my, my uh, guitarist, Andy Quinn, and I, we played more than words. We used to know that, you know, that song like the back of our hands. And we used to play it in, in high school. Um, and, uh, you know, Andy, my guitarist, had this idea of, of singing the song. And so then I was like, all right, let's try it. You know, I, I totally, you know, at that time, I was so scared, so nervous. I was like, what do we do? And so when he said more than words, I was like, I went blank. My mind went blank. So I just said, all right, let's see if I remember everything, you know, see if I remember the lyrics. And so he started playing the song and I started singing the very first verse. Right after I sang the first verse, the crowd went crazy and they began to sing the song in its entirety. So they kind of let me kind of step back and I stopped singing the song. And the reason why that happened was because Extreme is from Boston and I had no idea. There are some, you know, uh, guys that are born and raised in Boston. So the crowd went nuts when they heard us sing the song. And uh, from that reaction, uh, Columbia, uh, I want to say Charlie Walk, who was my general manager at the time, 
went crazy for the song and he goes, we need to remake that record, Frankie. So we did. Like within three or four days after, they flew me out to New York, me and my guitarist, Andy Quinn, and, and my producer, Happy Perez, and we cut the record. And that ended up being the third single off the album, The One. So that's how it all came about. Yeah, talk about a great use of filler because had Will not been late, we would not have gotten that classic right. remake. So big ups to Will for being late for that gig so that we can <laughs> get that up for a reason. and going. And I um, want to circle back real quick to Barrio Boys. I had a chance to interview Joe Jacket. He was telling me that while he was working oh, wow. in New Kids Camp with Maurice Starr, he was saying he wanted to do a group that can do what New Kids do but in English and Spanish, and that's how he formed Barrio Boys. And also another little side note, I don't know if you're familiar with this guy by the name of Nesto Velasquez. He had wow. a, yeah, he had a single on Uptown called Personality. I interviewed him as no. well. I interviewed him as well. And he told me that originally he was supposed to have been in Barrio Boys. Oh, wow. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah, he was originally supposed to have been in Barrio Boys, but later he went on to Uptown, put out personality, and then if the interview is on YouTube. If you want to check it out, people, that and other okay, archival cool. interviews. And also, uh, my boy Emil, shout out to Emil for making this happen. He mentioned that you and him, you guys have been collaborating on songs together. You guys wrote Take a Chance on Me for a little boy group out of the UK by the name of Jack the Lad Swing, AKA JLS. So what was your first impression yeah. on the fellas? Well, this is crazy because when we wrote the record, it was not meant for anybody else but me. I was, it was actually a record that I was doing for myself. And uh, it was kind of like a weird situation because um, it was one of those things where um, I think the song had been done for over a month and a half and uh, one of the other co-writers, uh, Nasri, had a connection with this group called JLS. And now, mind you, you know, um, I basically played every single instrument that's on that record. So basically, me and and Emil produced it. Uh, this could be a record for me to, um, you know, utilize to get signed to a major, to another major outside of, you know, because I I was already. Uh, um, uh, basically a, a free agent. I wasn't with Columbia anymore. I wasn't with Sony and I was looking for a new home. And, uh, and, and so we did this record. We did this record, uh, take a chance on me. And basically was like the idea, like, wow, this could be uh, the next song that, that I could come out with as a single and get signed to a, you know, to a major. So we were playing around with that idea until Nasri came about and said, Hey, there's a group called JLS out of London that is looking for a single. Um, I think the song is perfect for them. So of course we had a little uh, discussion about it and ended up now after that going to uh, a group called JLS. And when I heard JLS recorded, uh, being the fact that I had already recorded the song, they took my vocal, basically learned the song with my vocal and mimicked the demo or the recording that I had already had there. And I got to tell you, I, I, you know, I was impressed. I was impressed. They did a great job, um, and it uh, and, and and it was great. I mean, it, it it worked out. It worked out for everybody as far as you know us as writers and, and producers. And uh, 
you know, I was very fortunate uh, to have them, you know, take that record to the top. And I think it was their last album as a group um, that, uh, that they ever made. So it was, it was awesome, you know, to have someone else, you know, cut your record and, and do a, a amazing with it. Right. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with JLS, they finished, I believe, top three on their season of the UK X Factor. And the UK X Factor brought us Leona Lewis, Little Mix, and a little phenomenon right. you may have heard of known as One Direction. So why is it that you think JLS didn't really explode here in America where they had massive success in the home country in the UK? Yeah, so why do you think that's, that they that's strange that group that's when One Direction came in? Mm -hmm. So you think it was primarily that's a good question? Yeah. Yeah, it is because I yeah. I think I, I don't know, maybe because um, you know, everything happens for a reason. I think, you know, there's certain there's certain things that work in the US, there's certain things that work out there in, in the UK overseas certain things that might be big out there but not might be you know crazy big out here in this side of the world so uh, you know I, I don't know it's kind of a that's kind of a, a hard question to answer but uh, mm. you know they they did well they did well for what they had I, I think they released uh, what three albums as a group I believe mm. and and you know like you said they still had amazing success as a group as a boy band so but uh, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those things where you never know, because I did an interview recently with KG. He was a lead singer of a British boy band, Emanate, that was out mm -hmm. in the mid-90s, and we were discussing the difference in marketing and urban act in the UK as opposed to over here and how, like you stated, different marketing strategies. Now, on the topic of that, are there different marketing strategies when doing the English language album and then doing a Spanish language album and marketing that to the Latino, Latinx demographic? Yeah. Um, I mean, as I, you broke up a little bit on, on, what was the question? All right, the question is the different marketing strategies when doing an English language album for the mainstream market as opposed to a Spanish yeah. language album. I guess, you know, the, it, the, I mean, yeah, I mean it's it's tough when you're when you're balancing out both languages. You know, it's very hard. It's not easy. It's not, you know, when you're focusing on the English side, you gotta just focus on on that. And then when you're doing the Spanish, obviously you're gonna focus on the Spanish. But it's kind of hard to to dabble with both. So, you know, and, I, and I've, I've been able, I've been fortunate to do both. You know, I've been fortunate to do the Spanish. I guess you kind of have to know both markets. For me, when I first started with the Cumbia Kings, it taught me a lot about that that market, the Spanish side. And then when I went solo, you know, I, I basically was more successful on the English side, on the English market. So I had both both English and Spanish um, experiences. So uh, I think that also has a lot to do with it as, as an artist, not just as the label, you know, because obviously the label is the one that puts all the backing, you know, um, into the projects. But I think the artist also has to have, uh, you know, the major experience to, to, uh, to know how to handle, you know, both markets. Right. So it's handy. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. You definitely got to know what works because I was doing my research too and looking at Louis Fonzi. He had only did one English language album and that didn't fare well, but he's been making his bread and butter doing nothing but Spanish language albums. And as we saw with Despacito, longest running number one song in history and the biggest Spanish language single since Macarena. So it just goes to show you, hey, if you got a good product and you know what works for you, stick to it. Yeah. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. And also, your thoughts as a songwriter on the show Songland and how you think that it reveals the process that up-and-coming songwriters go through when getting the song pitched? Songland. I'm, is that the, the, the show, the TV show uh, with... Uh, uh, who is it? Is it? Um, um, it's Esther Dean. It, who else is on there on that show? Esther Dean, Shane McNally, and uh, Ryan Tedder from One Republic. Okay, so I ha I haven't seen um, many episodes, but I've, I've I've seen maybe one or two. I think I think it's a great way to teach people how to write songs. I think it's great that uh, that they're there, um, kind of schooling everyone on on how to make a hit. I mean, at the end of the day, nobody knows what a hit is, you know. It's, it's basically, you know, I mean, when we were writing, you know, Sugar Sugar or writing Daddy's Little Girl or Don't Want to Try, we didn't know that they were hits. We just felt that they, we just felt like they were good, good records. Um, but I think um, it's, it's, it's actually a really cool thing that they're doing that because they're kind of teaching the kids of today, the, the new generation, how to write songs, you know, and uh, I think it's a cool thing. You know? Yeah, I think it's good as well, because to me, from the outside looking in, just seeing how they're able to take, okay, this should be your pre-chords, take this third verse, put it at the top, put this here for your bridge, and just see how you're able to rearrange it like a puzzle piece, and at the end, it'd be a good finished product. For me, it's just like, wow, because like you said, you don't really know what a hit is, almost throw it at the wall and see what sticks and hope the public likes it. Exactly. There's a science to writing songs, you know, there is a science to it, but it doesn't mean that this science is going to get you a hit, it's going to give you a hit. It's, it's really all about how you connect with your, with your audience and how you connect with the world. I mean, right now I'm in a session, you know, with my good friend, Brian uh, Siono, and, uh, you know, he's letting me hear, you know, tracks and, and ideas and concepts and songs that, that he's created and they're just great records. Um, but what is a hit? Nobody really knows until you put that record out, or I should say the song out, and you let the people decide. Right, definitely let them decide. You can spend all the money in the suits with all your fancy marketing gimmicks and everything like that, but you're not going to know until the public gets a hold of it, and they the ones that tell you this exactly. is a hit. That's it. That's just it. You know, you're never going to know until the people decide, until you let them hear it. Mm, so what led you to create Soul Sick? I've always been told, you know, you know, when they say, hey, man, you got soul. You can sing. You got soul. So for me, uh, you know, when, when people would say that to me, I was like, man, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, you, you take that to heart. So for me, you know, when they would say that, the word soul just stuck to me as a kid. And then, you know, sick is a term that means in the street is like, oh, that's, that's, that's good, you know, even though it's totally the opposite of what it really truly means. But it's just a word that, that um, you know, people would use to, to, to say, man, you're, you're great. 
you're you're good you can sing amazing and you know so the the word sick was something that was more like a street kind of lingo and then i just put those two together uh the soul and the sick and i was like oh man i like the way it sounds and and it stuck that's how it all became what it is now <laughs> mm -hmm. and then we're looking at where we are now in the space of music with everything going digital and how the traditional model in the music industry has changed gone are the days where the labels put your stuff out and artists are making fractions of a penny on the record where if you already got a buzz coming in you're saying to the labels hey I just need you to distribute my stuff to get it out there bigger. I can upload my stuff directly to my fans via streaming platforms. So do you think that this day and age is better for the artists now that they have the upper hand if they already have leverage and exposure and they know a little bit more about the business as far as publishing, point structure, royalties, mechanical properties, everything of that nature? I think there's two sides to that token. I think... Um, you know, one, like you said earlier, if you can build your own audience, if you can build your own momentum and you know how by, by knowing how to connect with your, with your fan base, uh, I think that's a positive. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, obviously you're, you're ahead of the game. Um, but if, if, if you don't have also, if you don't have the, um, the, the money behind you, um, I think it's also a, it's also a problem because you need, obviously you need the, the, the money to be able to, to expand. Um, and you know, you also need, you need people that, that know what they're doing. You need people that know how to market you. Um, you know, you need people that, that know how to promote you. So I think, uh, uh, you know, for one, you got to know what you're doing, you know, and, and that's something that is a big, big, you know, thing uh, in, on the indie side. Um, I think, I don't know, it's, it's, it's either one or the other because being, being the fact that I've gotten both, both ends of, 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 uh, of those tokens, both sides, I should say, I mean, I've been signed to a, to a major, so I know what a major can do. Um, you know, and now that I'm on the indie side, like I have my fan base and I have the people that, that truly support my music, but now it's like, okay, how do I figure out, you know, now I have to put my own money out of my own pocket, you know? So, um, like I said, if, if, if you know how to connect with your audience, then you're good, you know? And if you have the, the way of distributing, you know, through, um, you know, independent distributor or a major distributor, then you've got it, you know, you're good. You're good to go. Right. And when can we expect new music from you? Oh man, well right now I have a new album that just came out in May. It's an album, uh, it's a Spanish album called Canciones Que Recuerdo. And it's a classic project uh, of standards, nothing but songs that, that uh, you know, in the Latin market that are already well-known, big classics, number one records uh, by artists like Jose Jose, artists like you know, uh, Frank Sinatra, you know, and uh, there's a song called My Way that I did in Spanish uh, in a mariachi style. Uh, songs by uh, a very well-known artist, composer, uh, rest in peace, Juan Gabriel, uh, Javier Solis, Rocio Durcal, all these great legendary, um, you know, artists that uh, have been around and, and uh, you know, have, have done 
you know, amazing with uh, the Latin market. Um, and so this album is a tribute to those artists and that have taught me, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a lot as a kid. So uh, it's an album called Canciones Que Recuerdo and uh, it's already out. So if you want to check it out, it's on all digital, all digital stores. Go check it out. Go hear it. And boy, get your out of here. Any shout outs and plug your social media. Oh, man. Well, it's first, first and foremost, man, I want to say thank you to the fans. Thank you to the listeners, to the viewers who are watching us now. Um, thank you to, you know, everyone that's, uh, you know, been a part of, of um, you know, my journey, my musical journey. Uh, you know, if it wasn't for you, uh, you know, everyone from media to the press that uh, has um, given me an opportunity to, uh, you know, get to my, my audience through through these, you know, awesome, awesome interviews. Uh, my social medias, my Instagram is the real Frankie J. My Facebook is Frankie J official. My Twitter is the real Frankie J. And I normally don't use TikTok, <laughs> um, but it's the real Frankie J if you want to find me there too. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's how you guys can, uh, you know, can find me. All right. And this interview will be available on YouTube, on my YouTube page, J5, and also on Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Mr. Frankie J on Beyond the Album Cover with yours truly. Frankie, I appreciate you coming on, and thank you for taking the time. No, I appreciate you, Jay. Thank you for the uh, opportunity. And uh, um, yeah, man, it's been a pleasure. It's been an honor. Dope.